Hello friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to continue on with this series about biblical archaeology. Uh, in other words, what has been found in the field of archaeology to confirm the historicity of our Bible. Now, if it sounds like I'm talking a little bit quieter today and maybe a little closer to the microphone, uh, that's because I am. It's really early on a Saturday morning. Everybody's sleeping, and I've got a very busy day ahead of me, so I'm trying to sneak in a podcast before everybody gets up. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this would be uh, part three of this series. Uh, this is the first time since I've gone to the 45 minute format, uh, that I've had a part three of anything. So, uh, kind of exciting. And so today we're going to continue talking about some of the things that have been found. Uh, but anyway, let's jump into some more, uh, interesting, fascinating, archaeological finds that confirm the historicity of our Bible. How about this one? King Sargon. King Sargon from Assyria. Uh, for the most part, for, for the longest time, he was only found in the pages of the Bible. Uh, critics started attacking the Bible and saying that King Sargon uh, did not exist. It's just another one of those mythical stories that you find in the Bible but then, in, uh, in 1847, his palace, this is a big palace, was discovered. Uh, and King Sargon's name is all over this place. Uh, there's over 200 rooms, 30 courtyards, uh, there's sculptured reliefs, written records. Uh, all this was excavated in Corsabad. Turns out King Sargon really was a real person. And once again, the Bible is vindicated as historically accurate. And speaking of kings, what about King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, here's another guy. And for quite some time, there was uh, some critics who were attacking the idea of both King Nebuchadnezzar and also Babylon. But now we have found Babylon located about 25 miles south of uh, uh, Baghdad. In Babylon, they have found uh, uh, temples to Marduk, uh, the city walls, houses, pots, pans, uh, metal objects, stone carvings, uh, cuneiform inscriptions. Again, guys, uh, I think I mentioned at the beginning of the series, did I or did I not? Cuneiform... Uh, is a type of writing that is uh, done by using a little wedge. And so if you're ever looking at uh, some old artifacts at a museum or something along those lines, and you see it just looks like a bunch of little triangles that are kind of pressed into clay, um, that's cuneiform. So now you can impress your friends with your amazing understanding of ancient languages when you see these <laughs> wedge inscriptions you can say ah yes i believe that's cuneiform <laughs> anyway uh right so cuneiform inscriptions back to babylon and uh likenesses of nebuchadnezzar himself have been discovered as well by golly i think he might have been a historical person now friends I, I mean, this kind of blows me away. Here we got a guy, 
King Nebuchadnezzar. He's he's quite the fellow in the Bible. You read about him in uh, uh, the latter part of Second Kings. So around Second Kings 24 especially, there is a, a great battle that's talked about. And you also hear quite a bit uh, about King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Uh, what I find fascinating, I mean, this just blows me away. When you read about King Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, I guess, okay, I'm hearkening back to the first, that first time that I read the Bible cover to cover. And I'm, and I'm starting in Genesis and I'm working my way through. And I hear about King Nebuchadnezzar in Second Kings and also in Chronicles. Um, he's a pretty bad dude, okay? He's incredibly evil, right? Then you get into the book of Daniel. You hear more about him. He's just, he's just an unrighteous guy, right? He causes a lot of problems. And then you have this situation in the book of Daniel where uh, God turns Nebuchadnezzar into a madman uh, because of Nebuchadnezzar's, boy, say that name 10 times really fast. I'm having a hard time. Uh, because of Nebuchadnezzar's boasting about how he's the one that built this great empire and doesn't give God any of the glory, God turns him into a madman. And I mean, almost like a, well, the Bible describes him more like a beast. His hair grows out, uh, his fingernails grow out, and he's running around eating grass in the field. I think it's the Bible's first case of a werewolf. And uh, <laughs> he goes nuts. For seven years, this goes on. And then all of a sudden he comes to, all right, seven years later, and his kingdom is returned to him. And believe it or not, there is a chapter in the book of Daniel that is written by King Nebuchadnezzar. Now that blows me away. Uh, if any of you are, are curious, uh, you can find this in Daniel chapter four. Kind of a fun read. I was blown away by this. And I won't read the whole chapter, but I just want to read a little bit. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. <laughs> this is after he came to, after seven years of being a, a basically a beast, running around on all fours and eating grass off the ground. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. And so you see that Nebuchadnezzar, he's actually, he's giving praise to the most high God. This is a guy who uh, worshipped Marduk um, as his God. And now here he sees that it is the Most High God, the King of the heavens and the earth, the God of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, that is King, that is Creator. And so he, he goes on and he gives his testimony. And at the end of the chapter, you hear him say again, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all whose works are truth and his ways, judgment, and those that walk in pride, <laughs> he is able to abase. Awesome. I love it. Love it. Okay. So anyway, that was a little 
rabbit trail there that was a whole lot of fun. I just get a kick out of the fact that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote one of the chapters of the Bible. Uh, so anyway, getting back to archaeology, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and his siege of uh, Jerusalem, uh, there have been some inscriptions that have been found. Uh, the Babylonian uh, chronicle tablets talk about that very siege of Jerusalem where uh, Nebuchadnezzar takes Jerusalem. And uh, you can read about this a little bit about this siege. Uh, you can find in Second uh, Kings chapter 24, also Daniel chapter 1. Uh, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jeho Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with part of the vessels of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God and brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. These are little g, his God. Okay, so um, uh, at long last, Jerusalem is taken down. King Nebuchadnezzar comes against the city, besieges it. Uh, King Je Jehoiakim uh, is defeated, and uh, the rest is history. Uh, in these Babylonian chronicle tablets, we get to hear their point of view. Again, the Bible is historically accurate. I love it. I mean, we just, again, you look at all of the different religions of old, okay? Um, whether it be of, you know, so many of the mystery religions going back through antiquity, throughout history, uh, and, and even coming forward, looking at uh, uh, the history of uh, Islam, or coming forward even farther and looking at the history of uh, the Book of Mormon and Mormonism, all right? You, you, everywhere you look, you start digging around in the soil, you start poking around in areas that match, um, well, at least come remotely, sort of, kind of, not really, but a little bit close to <laughs> the accounts you find in the Book of Mormon. No matter where you go, wherever wherever you dig, whether it's the Hill of Camorra or whatever, you look and you look and you look and you can't find anything. I mean, just not even anything to support uh, uh, the historicity of the Book of Mormon. And you find so many discrepancies amongst the historical accounts of, of Islam. Going farther back, you look at Various, uh, well, you look at accounts of even Buddha, and there are so many different uh, contradicting accounts of his life. You look at so many different mystery religions, and you find out that, for the most part, it's just mythology. I mean, the whole stories, these different stories, are built on just plain mythology. It's, it's a story. It's a fiction but then you read through the pages of the Bi pages of the Bible, and it is one historical event after another, just one after another. And the more we search, the more we research the areas, uh, real areas, real historical geographical areas, cities, towns, uh, you name it, countries, and we just keep finding more and more evidence proving that the Bible is absolutely correct. 
Again, that does not uh, prove or confirm the the miraculous nature of the Bible, you know, the different miracles that happen, uh, the supernatural side of the Bible. Uh, that takes a little more uh, work, but uh, you see what I'm saying? We can trust the Bible as a historical document. And that is, again, that's one of the attacks that's been continuously coming upon the Bible is, how can you trust that book? And the miracles and the supernatural signs and wonders, this, that, and the other, that you find in the Bible, if you can't even trust the history that's written in that book, well, it turns out, after uh, many years of digging in the soil, we can trust the history. So, on these Babylonian chronicle tablets, we see this written. Uh, it says, in the seventh year, in the month of Kislev, the Babylonian king, that would be Nebuchadnezzar, mustered his troops... Uh, he had large bottles of mustard and he was mustering, uh, no, I'm sorry, bad, bad joke. Anyway, you know, I've got the worst corniest, uh, uh, sense of humor. Anyway, he mustered his troops and having marched to the land of Haiti, uh, which is, uh, basically Syria, Palestine besieged the city of Judah uh, and on the second day of the month of Adar, took the city and captured the king Jehoiakim. Uh, he appointed therein a king of his own choice, that would be Zedekiah, uh, received its heavy tribute and sent them to Babylon. Guys, that is exactly what the Bible says. I mean, uh, all these different details. Uh, yeah, he, he captured the king. Uh, then he appointed his own king. Uh, he took a heavy tribute. Then he took the captives, sent them to Babylon. This is all stuff that was mentioned in the Bible. And it, and it, 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 it went down exactly as the Bible says. Uh, other interesting finds, uh, they found the Ishtar Gate. That Ishtar Gate has been reconstructed for the most part, um, refurbished a little bit. In uh, the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, um, this Ishtar Gate is 47 feet tall. Uh, if you have a moment, you ought to Google it or Yahoo it or whatever. Uh, search it out, Bing it, <laughs> and, and look at some of the pictures of this thing. It's, it's really cool. Um, kind of a bluish color with uh, gold uh, designs all over it. Pictures of horses, lions, and some other strange animals that some think might even be uh, some kind of dinosaur. I have no idea. Uh, but whatever the case, they found some uh, 15 million baked bricks, uh, many of them containing inscriptions on them that say Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, eldest son of Nabopolassar, king of Babylon. Once again, showing that the Bible is historic, historically accurate. Another thing that's pretty fascinating, we have this story in the book of Daniel where uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, if my wife Danielle was here, she would correct me and give me the three names uh, that are found in the VeggieTale cartoon. I've already forgot their names. But uh, anyway, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they refused to kneel down before the king when they played the music and, and actually worship the king. And they were threatened. And they were told that if they did not worship the king, they would be cast into a furnace and burned alive 
And, uh, well, you guys know the story. They were, in fact, cast into that furnace. The guys that cast them into the furnace actually, uh, the furnace was stoked so hot that the guys that threw them into the furnace ended up dying. Okay? Man. But Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego, they lived right on through that. Uh, and there was somebody else in the fire with them. Many people think that's a theophany, that Jesus himself showed up in the fiery furnace with them. Uh, I think that's I don't, it's a good theory. I don't know. It might have been uh, the Archangel Michael, for all we know. But it could have been Jesus. And uh, there is simply the fact that uh, when the king gazed in there, uh, he he makes his comment that it was like the Son of God was in there. Uh, kind of interesting. But anyway, rabbit trail. Can you say rabbit trail? Anyway, we have discovered some of these fiery furnaces uh, uh, that were used to throw people into. All right, so we've actually confirmed that this was a Babylonian practice, that uh, somebody disobeys the king, makes him a little mad, and next thing you know, they're getting cast into a furnace and they're getting cremated alive. Uh, Harold Wilmington, a professor at Liberty University in Virginia, he says it this way, says, the early excavators at Babylon uncovered a peculiar-shaped building that at first seemed like a brick kiln. An inscription was found that specified the purpose of this building, and this is what it said. This is the place of burning where men who blasphemed the gods of Chaldea died by fire. Wow. Okay, so no, we don't know if this is actually the exact furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got tossed into. I'd say it's a very real possibility. We might actually be looking at the very one. Uh, but whatever the case, um, we do know that that was a practice uh, of taking dissenters, non-worshippers, if you will, and tossing them, tossing them into the fire. You know, you can almost see Satan's perversion of the truth in that, uh, because we do have a God who does eternally punish those who refuse to trust in and follow him. Uh, and now we see this perversion of, oh, you're not going to worship and bow down to this king where we're going to toss you into this fire. Huh. So moving on, uh, Belshazzar, you guys heard about Belshazzar. He's in the book of Daniel. Uh, if you remember, uh, he was the king that had that great big party with uh, some of the golden instruments, some of the, the, the dishes, basically, that were found in the temple that, that had been ransacked by the Babylonians and taken. Uh, and he has this great big party where he's drinking wine with all of his, his guests, and they're getting sloshed with God's... Uh, 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 dishes, basically, using the cups that were found in the temple. Oh, man. A really unwise decision, let me tell you. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Uh, God gets a little angry about this, and, uh, and a giant hand starts writing on the wall. And you guys know the story. Uh, that very night, uh, uh, that very night, the Medes and the Persians uh, ran, well, they walked right into Babylon. They just walked right in. And uh, Belshazzar and all of his servants were killed. 
that was that was that. Uh, now critics have come against this story uh, in the book of Daniel, saying that there was no historical character named Belshazzar. And now that this is the third part of the series, you know that I'm about to tell you that <laughs> we've discovered something that proves them wrong. Well, sure enough, we have uh, the Babylonian chronicle tablets were discovered. And on this uh, Babylonian chronicle tablet, we find out that Nabonidus, uh, Belshazzar's father, uh, it says that uh, he departed for a multi-year stay in the Arabian oasis town of Tima, about 450 miles away from Babylon. Uh, but anyway, uh, he entrusted the rule of Babylon during this departure uh, to his son, Belshazzar. Uh, also, since then, we've also found a uh, a cylinder that contains uh, Belshazzar's name as well. It records a prayer of Nabonidus. Uh, again, that's Belshazzar's dad. Um, and he's praying for his son, Belshazzar. Uh, oddly enough, he's praying to the moon god, Sin. That's right, the moon god, Sin. Now, as just a, a little rabbit trail here, and, and this may not be very important, but uh, uh, it's interesting. I mentioned this in my series on Islam. Uh, Allah actually used to be a tribal god of the Quraysh tribe, the tribe that, um, um, that Muhammad was raised in. And uh, I don't know, I just found it interesting. Allah was the moon god of the Quraysh tribe of Muhammad. Um, there's probably no connection there. I honestly have no idea. I've never looked into it. But yeah, the moon god referred to as Sin, S-I-N. Uh, anyway, rabbit trail done. Let's move on. I, I guess another thing worth mentioning, because some people think this is a problem, uh, is that uh, Nabonidus is, in both of these instances, the Babylonian uh, chronicle tablet, as well as this uh, other cylinder with this prayer from Nabonidus, they both say that Nabonidus is Belshazzar's father. Uh, the Bible doesn't say that, though. The Bible says that Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father. Well, uh, this was this particular part of the Bible, uh, Book of Daniel, was written in Aramaic. The word that is used for father can also mean uh, grandfather, basically relative. So eh, it's not a Bible contradiction. It's not a Bible uh, uh, mistake or error. I really don't see a problem there. If the word is loose enough to include grandfather, that's good enough for me. So anyway, uh, moving on, another uh, character that's mentioned in the Bible is Cyrus. Now, Cyrus, pretty fascinating. He is the guy who issued the decree to let the Jews go home from Babylon. They were held captive in Babylon, and uh, Cyrus issues this decree to let the Jews go back home to their homeland. Now, most of them don't take them up on this, oddly enough. They choose to stay in Babylon, but some do go home. Um, I think it's interesting, too. Uh, fascinating, in fact. I mentioned this in somewhere in my series on the evidence for the divine inspiration of the Bible. Uh, there is a prophecy that mentions Cyrus by name 
in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 is where it starts, and then it goes on into uh, chapter 45. But just as a fun little rabbit trail, I just think this is fun. It's it's worth mentioning. Um, There is this passage in Isaiah where the Lord is speaking of himself. and, And, well, you know, God has many amazing attributes about himself. The Lord is speaking and he says, uh, um, that saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple, thy foundation shall be laid. Amen. That's awesome. I love that. And see guys, uh, Isaiah was written long before the events, uh, found, uh, well, in in the book of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, where the people go back home to Israel and start rebuilding, uh, this is much later. And going on to, to chapter twenty, chapter forty five of Isaiah, thus saith the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leaved gates. And the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates, the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. <laughs> awesome. I love it. Okay, so anyway, Cyrus, another character that once again has uh, been found archaeologically. We've, we've discovered some things that have uh, carried his name, namely the, the Cyrus Cylinder. It's a, a, clay, a clay barrel that was discovered in Babylon uh, in 1879, mentions uh, Cyrus. It says a few things about Cyrus. It mentions, it talks about a lot of his military victories, and then it goes on to uh, talk about how he allowed the captives in Babylon to return to their homeland. Probably one of the most amazing discoveries, uh, archaeologically, has been the Dead Sea Scrolls. Around 19, end of 1946, early 1947, uh, there was a Bedouin sheep herder, shepherd, who, having lost one of his goats was walking along the Dead Sea, was walking along near the Dead Sea where there were uh, many, many caves. Uh, So many, in fact, that he didn't want to waste his time going into each one of these caves. So rather, he was throwing rocks into each of these caves, hoping to scare out his goat. Okay, that makes sense. You can see God's divine hand here, the providence of the Lord. uh, As he throws the rock into one of the caves... He hears a pot shatter, uh, and so at this point, he's thinking, well, maybe there's some treasure in there. So he climbs up into this cave, and sure enough, he finds many broken jars and some scrolls. Uh, He takes some of these scrolls with him back to his tent. Um, It's kind of funny. You know, this is a great story, really. He brings these scrolls back to his tent because he's going to make sandal straps out of them. (laughs) We got one of the most greatest uh, uh, archaeological finds. This guy's going to make uh, sandal straps out of them. And 
uh, about a year or so after he found them, he ends up selling them to a Bethlehem cobbler named Kando. Kando uh, sold antiqu- an- antiquities out of his uh, back room of his shop, and he sold them to this guy for 16 pounds. Seriously. Uh, for four of the scrolls, okay? Uh, now, somebody else ended up finding three more of these scrolls, and they sold them to Kando as well. Kendo had no idea what he had in his hands, all right? Kendo ended up selling three of them uh, to uh, another dealer named Salahi, and then he sold four of them to the Archbishop of St. Mark's Monastery. Uh, Salasi, Salahi, uh, the first dealer, he ended up selling his scrolls uh, to a professor from a Hebrew university named Sukhanik. Uh The Archbishop that we just heard about, he ended up turning down uh, an offer to buy those uh, scrolls from Sukhanik to sell his scrolls to Sukhanik, but rather he took out an ad uh, in the New York, in the Wall Street Journal uh, to sell his scrolls. And uh, it's kind of funny, again, uh, Sukhanik's son just happened to be in New York, saw the ad, and arranged to buy the remaining scrolls for $250,000. Okay, once word got out, um, that these scrolls were selling for so much money. I mean, in other words, they really were treasure. Uh, that <laughs> that poor Bedouin shepherd who thought that they were basically uh, uh, fit for making uh, sandal straps and then selling them for 16 pounds. Uh, man, he missed out. <laughs> but anyway, uh, since that time, once everybody, once the word got out that there was some serious treasure going on here, uh, more scrolls, much, many more scrolls have been discovered. And uh, in fact, around 100,000 different fragments have been found uh, around the Dead Sea, in the Dead Sea area. Uh, these fragments... Uh, are from over 900 different writings and books, uh, many of which are not scriptural, okay? We've, we've got some apocryphal and pseudopigraphical books uh, that have been found amongst uh, these texts, these fragments. Uh, but 223 of these writings were uh, uh, copies of Old Testament books. Uh, guys, amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find uh, a copy of every single book of the Bible except for the book of Esther. Now, that's very significant. Uh, at the time, the oldest uh, uh, copy of the Old Testament was from around the 10th century A.D. Okay, so now we've got text going back uh, over a thousand years before our oldest text, okay? So, very significant. Uh, Also, uh, we're able then to compare the textual uh, uh, variances between what we had at the time versus now these really old copies. And we're finding, again, uh, that 
there really was very little uh, variances, uh, mainly just names of cities and people, okay? Misspellings, in other words. So, again, we do have the Bible as it was written. There might be some mistakes here and there, little copyist errors, uh, but for the most part, we do have the scriptures as they were written down in their uh, originals. One of these days, I would love to get um, some guests to come onto the show and talk about how we got our Bible, talk about manuscripts, talk about uh, textual criticism. Uh, there's so much in that area to talk about how we got our Bibles today. Of course, somewhere in there, we need to have another guest on and talk about the different versions. There's so much to talk about there. And, and honestly, there's a lot of bad information out there on the internet. So that's going to be difficult to find uh, some some scholars that um, are going to give you the right story. Unfortunately, in many of the seminaries... Uh, there is a lot of misinformation going around. So anyway, uh, look forward to that. Uh, if anybody has some suggestions, I, I have a couple ideas of people that I would like to invite on the podcast. But if any of you out there have some suggestions, I would love to hear them. Uh, whatever the case, yeah, that is something I would love to explore in the future. All right, and so before I run off to the New Testament here, I just want to mention one more thing that's kind of fun and fascinating. Uh, for... Many years, critics have attacked the story of Daniel and the lion's den, calling it fiction uh, and, and mythology, basically, because there is no evidence that throwing somebody into a den of lions has been discovered anywhere, as far as like that being a, a punishment that was meted out to those who were dissenters uh, of the king. Uh, that all changed one day when an excavator, uh, oh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce this guy's name, uh, Dilafoy. He was working one day in the ruins of Babylon and he fell into what, well, everybody believed was a well. Uh, one of his fellow workmen helped him back out and they found, after looking it over, an inscription that said it was the place of execution where men who angered the king died being torn by wild animals. Also, uh, the the palace of Shushan uh, was mentioned in, in Nehemiah, Esther, and Daniel. Daniel, when they were excavating that particular site, they did find a a, a record that gave the list of four hundred and eighty four men of high rank who who had died in the lion's den. So it turns out that maybe that account in the book of Daniel was not as fictional as we might have originally thought. Of course, you guys know what I'm saying. I, I believe every word in the Bible. I believe that it is all true, every account, including strange stories like Samson and a talking donkey with Balaam. So, it is all true. It is the Word of God. Whatever the case, let's look at the New Testament. Of course, we have nowadays so many scholars who, oh boy, even within certain Christian circles, quote unquote Christian, because I don't think anybody could be a Christian and believe this, but they are questioning 
the historical Jesus? Did he even exist? Uh, I have a series on uh, the historical, finding the historical Jesus. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's out there. It's on Sermon Audio. Uh, There's another series that I did on the Caesar's Messiah uh, theory, if you will, uh, that Jesus was nothing more than a mythical character that was created, somewhat fashioned after Titus. That's right. And really, Jesus was just a fictional character created by Josephus to appease and calm down those feisty, angry Jews who uh, just didn't like Rome and the Romans. And so to just try to calm them down, they created this fictional character called Jesus and say, hey, look, Jews, you're Messiah. He came and he wins. What a messed up theory. Uh, I have a series on that if you guys would like to hear that as well. But yeah, so many people question the historicity of Christ. I believe that there's going to be another series on this in the not too distant future where I want to really, you know, kick every stone over and look at all the evidence for a historical Christ. I think there's more evidence for our Lord Jesus Christ than there is for any other man in in antiquity uh, really there is so much evidence and i think anybody with half a brain can look at how christianity exploded onto the scene and unlike many other faiths that are out there christianity is rooted in as we've been discussing here in the series real history it's rooted in real history real historical events And you have men and women who were there. They witnessed these events. They were there, okay? They saw Christ rise from the dead. They actually witnessed these events and were willing to die horrifically painful uh, martyrdom-style deaths rather than renounce what they knew to be true. Of course, there are people out there today who are willing to die for what they have not seen, right? We've seen this over and over and over, uh, especially coming from Islam, where you've got people who are willing to strap bombs to themselves and blow themselves up in crowded areas with women and children around, uh, calling themselves martyrs, uh, because of things that they believe but they were not there. They did not meet Muhammad. They did not see Muhammad have conversations with this Allah. Okay, all these things, they didn't see it. They didn't experience it. They weren't there to see Jesus Christ, right? And these early martyrs of our faith who actually uh, either saw the risen Christ or were close friends with new people, uh, were discipled by people who saw these actual events and they were willing to die horrific, painful deaths, defending what they knew to be true. Nobody dies for what they know is a lie. In other words, right? Who in the world would die for what they knew for fact was a lie. You might, might, I, I can't imagine it, but you might be able to find one or two people out there that were so deluded they thought, hey, maybe if we can, the world would be a better place if we could spread this lie, right? <laughs> but how many Christian martyrs died for what they knew was true? I mean, really, 
it, it's it's it baffles the mind uh, to to consider that all these early believers died for what they knew to be a lie. Whatever the case, there there is so much to talk about as far as who you know th- this historical Jesus did he really exist? Well, of course he did, uh, and I think I want to devote a whole uh, podcast. Uh, I would like to get somebody on and devote a whole podcast to that. But whatever the case, I have talked about it in previous podcasts. So uh, we're not going to get into that too much in this, well, part four now, because we're coming up on the end of part three. Uh, This series is going much longer than I thought. Anyway, we're pretty much at the 45 minute mark here. I am going to stop here and tomorrow, tomorrow, ha, uh, next week, we're going to talk about uh, the New Testament and discoveries that have been found to support the New Testament. Uh, it might not be next week. I might space these out a little bit so that we don't continue in the vein of archaeology for weeks on end. But whatever the case, anyway, we'll, we'll get into that. We'll look at the New Testament. Uh, so anyway, I'll stop right there. Uh, I love you guys, and we'll see you next week.